How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 149. Woo! One week! Uno weeko. Uno weeko. We didn't even talk about being 150 until today. <laughs> I know. We we honestly picked, like an hour ago, what we're actually going to do for 150, which is not what we've done the last two milestones. <laughs> no, it was a lot of premeditated effort into yep. the, the other two. If I recall, it's uh, Apocalypse Now. No, it was The Shining. It was The Shining and there then The Godfather. Go. Um, and The Godfather. I did, it was, we uh, did do Apocalypse Now that same like week because those were all pre-records. Yeah. So so we did them in pretty close succession. And this one is up there next week on the show, but we're going to talk about this week because that's kind of more important right now. Yeah, we're not going to jump too far <laughs> no. into life. We're not going to sure. jump the shark. No, exactly. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are actually jumping from one episode and over a bunch of, of sharks, so to speak, mm. onto this episode. Yeah, so there's a good chance that, and probably what we would recommend, and it's probably going to be a big point of our conversation, is mm. you've probably been watching, uh, listening to uh, 140. I hope you're not watching. 140, and now I don't know where you would onto be this one. So, obviously, because they are direct sequels to one another. Ooh, mm. My chair just... You almost broke my brand new chair. <laughs> brand new chair that I picked off off the verge <laughs> and dusted clean, kind of. But to, uh, but to yeah. tease the conversation we're going to be having later in the show, obviously, this is the sequel to our 140 episode. Jake, have yeah. you got any trivia for me? I do, actually. So, speaking of the wider gamut of the cinema sideshow cinematic universe, can does that work? You have cinema and cinematic in the same sort of abbreviation? Cinematic sideshow universe? That makes CS, sense. The CSU? The CSU. <laughs> the CSU. Our personal CSU. Well, I want to talk a bit about the wider gamut of it, because, of course... We are talking about episode 140, where we talked about the first film, mm. of course, before Sunrise. Yes. In which I talked about the one scene in Waking Life, another uh, rotoscoped animated film from Richard Linklater, which I still haven't seen myself, but does contain one scene in, uh, involving Jesse and Celine. Of course, this would be the only time that they've like appeared in any form between the two films, mm-hmm. although not canonically, as we're going to talk about. It wouldn't make any sense for them to have... Uh, being in bed in that scene, for example, based on what happens between these two films. But what I found interesting is that that film, of course, Waking Life, was actually distributed by Fox Searchlight Pictures, who didn't work on any other animated film until about eight years later. Guess what film they did? Fantastic Mr. Fox. There you go. Our discussion of last week's episode. So, so the one, we've become incredibly meta. We've become one with own, the force. With our own episodes. <laughs> Um, well, mine's not as as, as metaphysical it's a, it's as yours. A little yours, more focus. <laughs> um, I actually this I find this fascinating and as more like something that I've just learned about filmmaking um, oh. Oh, and okay. the whole industry. So, whoa! Um, though this movie was nominated for best adapted screenplay, the screenplay is not based upon any existing text. Yes, 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 yes. However, the Academy Rulebook says all sequels are adaptions. I thought about this yesterday. Ironically, I must have saw the same thing you were looking yeah. at, because um, I thought my instant reaction is that kind of sucks, and the more I thought about, it, I was like, that actually makes a lot of sense. I'm totally. The, I first heard about this when Toy Story three was nominated for an adapted screenplay. Yeah, and I was confused. And you're right. If you're a, if it's a sequel, it's automatically classified as an adapted screenplay. Mm. Which I actually, the more I think about it, I think is totally fair because if you have your original screenplay, obviously you're looking for well, more or less originality in your script as well as like story and characters and all that thing. But I think part of separating adapted screenplays is how do they adapt 
source material, whether it be mm-hmm. a book or a, or a game or whatever the case may be, or in the case of a sequel, a story based on characters that already exist. Yeah. So that makes I think sense. It's an me. interesting one because, um, and we're gonna we're gonna discuss sort of the way you should view these films up until this point, compare mm-hmm. and contrast the two. It's a huge intrinsic part of the, of this conversation that we'll have in the second half of the show. Um, it just surprised me. And obviously, yeah, like upon thinking about it, I understand the motivations behind it. Yep. Um, even though both are technically original, mm. um, and I both think they stand in isolation yet complement each other. So it, it'll be interesting to see, but I, for most, I, obviously, yeah, it, it kind of makes sense because obviously you are building off, um, previous character arcs and story being told. Um, it's just interesting because, you know, it's like, I think of sequels of, well, a great example would be like, to counter it would be, what if Indiana Jones' sequels were nominated? Mm. Technically, all of those films are isolated from one another in right. the first three. So, you know. But I think it's Raiders, purely character. Dude, and, but he, if anything, especially, particularly in the first two, he doesn't really change that much as a person. It's sort of he goes on an adventure. No, but it's it's, it's more... We're getting into technicalities here because I'm not talking about, like, arcs. I'm talking about, like, the IP. Yeah. Like, the company's own IP. Sure. Like, somebody owns Indiana Jones, the character. So mm. it's sort of, like, almost an adaptation of that original. Mm. It, it's really weird. Because it's but, interesting because it's yeah. even, like, in the marketing. Like, I have the Blu-ray box set and it says The Adventures of Indiana Jones. Right. Which makes it even more feel like, well, it actually, you can pick up Raiders and then you can pick up um, Last Crusade and mm. you can watch them in isolation of each other. Yeah. Because he doesn't mention his dad in the first two films. His dad's in the third. It's sort of like, you know, we were talking about the you know, the Uncharted trailer that came out what, right, a week yeah. or two ago and how those games, I mean, you would say as someone who's played them, right, like... Um, they're kind of isolated from each other, really, right? Like, they're still... I, they definitely get more reliant. Like, I I think it's absurd to play the fourth one without playing any of the ones before it. Sure. Because there's a lot of backstory that leads into that. But even then, back, it's not backstory because it's, it's story. Yeah. <laughs> it's the original games. But that being said, they're still adaptations of the original set of characters. Like, I get... I just get that. Yeah, fair enough. Even if the stories feel secluded in ways. Yeah. But yeah, no, that is interesting, and mm. and that is something that I always forget as well and find yeah. weird. A lot of the other trivia is basically based around the real le- real world versus fiction world blending that these two films both uh, mm. dive into. But that's more important to talk about, I think, in the second half of the show. Yeah, for sure. But before we move into, I guess, what we've been watching the last week, Zeke, there's a poster behind you. There's a poster. I think I think our fans know by now yeah. that the poster behind you has 1,100 films you must watch before you die. Is this film on the poster? It is, and it should be. It's not on. That's just ridiculous. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spoil it because we've already. I mean, at this point, we already know two of the pre results. None of those films, none of the before trilogies, on the poster. That's offensive. That is offensive. <laughs> I agree. Writing a letter to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Congress wrote that list. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no. the birth of a nation's on there. That's insane. That's actually insane. <laughs> From a a romance drama point of view. And I've only watched the first two films, but can openly say that they are probably one and two for best romance dramas out there. Mm. Like they're probably like they're not rom coms. They're not. There's way more going on in them to put them in the rom coms 
um, category. Yeah, I think. yeah. Um, but in terms of that's why they're romance drama films, which is romance more importantly. Um, and I think that they are just magnificent. But that's for the second half of the show. Mm, the first course, half of the show is about talking about what we watched in the last week, which I'm sure, Jake, you've got a few things for me. Actually, I have very little for you. I watched <laughs> I watched a 15-minute short film, and that's it. That's all I've watched in the last week. Thank God I'm free now because <laughs> I've got stuff to talk about. I was saying so off, we're spitballing it. Like, yeah, yeah, like I was saying off the air, not to be too gen- it was tied into the topic, but I said to um, a couple of my teaching friends, I was like, thank God everything's over. Because for everyone who doesn't know, I finished my first year of Masters last week. Very uh, nice. Congratulations. Um, on the day I turned 24, so double down on that. Um, uh, but yeah, look, that's all done. And now I was able to watch stuff this week because it feels mm. like for the last six or seven weeks of the show, it's been, yes, I've watched this one show because it's the only thing I can fit in, <laughs> which I still have been watching that. But um, your 15 minute short film, Jake. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't personally call it a short film. It's a creator. It's director would prefer you call it a short film so i'm going to for the sake so i watched all too well which is the taylor swift Swifty, thing everyone's yeah that's the taylor swift one, yeah, yeah it's the taylor, yep 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 so for those who don't know it's essentially a short film i think the extended version of one of her songs um which i think ends up coming at 10 minutes so there is five minutes worth of i guess like credits and there is one dialogue scene in there it's otherwise essentially a music video and it depicts a relationship between uh, you know, this guy and a girl, respectively played by Sadie Sink and Dylan O'Brien, uh, who I think are great in it. I love the cinematography in it. I think it's very aesthetically pleasing from, um, got it here, from Rena Yang, who actually shot in a 35mm, which I thought was cool. And they left in a lot of the, like when the, the physical film print sort of like rears out of perspective and you can see the edges of it. I actually like that they left it's it in kind of 4.4. On yeah, so look, that's the only reason I watched it is because obviously of the price. It was at 4.6 a few days ago, so it's only evening out now. But like, if you look at the other Swifty stuff on Letterboxd, Letterboxd community are a huge bunch of Swifties. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, even the Miss Americana documentary is, is highly rated, and I didn't even mind that. I liked mm. it more than you did, for example. Also, uh, Folklore, The Long Pond Studio Sessions, the other thing she directed, is on mm. a 4.5. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like a concert... Like, that's not, like, a film film. That's, like, a concert thing that she just performed in. Like, that's a comedy. I know Billie Eilish has done stuff like that. Um, and I've ranted before in the show about... Not ranted, but just talked about... I don't understand the fascination of these modern-day or contemporary pop artists who are getting these very real-time documentaries made about them. Because you have Miss Americana. You have the Billie Eilish one. There's one at Shawn Mendes, which I haven't seen that one. But I just... I Like, it's interesting to have that perspective, but I think the fact that they're so... Um, contemporary and that we're just seeing a glimpse of their day-to-day life which mm. is frankly I wouldn't call it mundane it focuses on the mundanity of it which obviously is meant to juxtapose these big like huge icon um, you know worship status that we seem to have these pop artists on so I like the juxtaposition with that I, I still don't get it I much prefer something like the Sparks Brothers was like, alright let's look back on this long history on this band and really dissect what they're about as opposed to just like a hangout film. Mm. Um, but anyway, I'm getting a little off track. My point is that the Letterbox community loves Taylor Swift yeah, and, and praises her work to no end. So I watched it. I was like, right, I'm expecting this to be at least good because I've heard so many, so many great things about it. And it's obviously meant to be an allegory on 
the relationship she had with Jake Gyllenhaal back in 2010, which is a whole thing on its own. The main takeaway being that there was a pretty big age gap, I think nine years, and it looks even wider in, in this sort of fictionized version of it in this short film. Again, I'll reluctantly call it a short film. But I did not like this. I was... I was going to say, your review seems almost as long as the film. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it to be like a long way. It's just, I just like had... These the are the joke things was too easy. I wanted, to yeah, use. I know. It's, I, want, I had the things that I weren't... Like I said, I think the performances are good. Yeah. I like the cinematography. I think it's great. I like the 65mm feel to it. And again, the fact that they left the physical film reel and everything. Nice little touches like that. I like that. But for a film that is very clearly trying to say something about gaslighting and about the, the power dynamics of like a couple with a big age gap and things like that, it doesn't really say much at all. It felt self-congratulatory, especially because she you know walks in herself at the end and dyes her hair red like Sadie Sinks and presents to a group of women and it's all like very self-patting on the back, like, you know, oh, look, I got out of this and now everyone looks to me as I'm a hero. And, um, and again, I just... I'm not trying to be insensitive because there's a lot of people out there who've watched this and have taken away great things from it and made yeah. them reflect on their own situation. That's fantastic. And I'm obviously not the target audience here. It's a 24-year-old guy who I don't think I've been in a relationship that's quite that level of dynamic. I've only been maybe a year or two yeah. older than any of the, the women that I've dated in my life. Sure. Um, one of them being a huge Swifty herself and it is kind of eerie to see like the way she talks and the way she like walks and like oh, it's very creepy that like she's trying to replicate Taylor Swift and I didn't notice that until uh, I was missing see, that you, kind of wrong person to be talking. I'm not a Swifty at all. Oh, I'm, that's fair I've enough. Never been a Swifty. But um, yeah, it's it's like I said, like those con- those things that I imagined this film would tackle, it didn't really do it well. It was just a collection of shots of a couple being happy and then being sad and then they're happy again and then they're sad and then eventually they just break up and then they grow older. And there's, like I said, there's one dialogue scene in there, which is which is fine. But it was fine. The performances are good. But it's just, it's just like, I've seen this before. Mm. You know? And I, I'm like, I do not get the hype. I'm sorry. And I just personally am not a huge fan of diss tracks. You know, when like Eminem, like he throws shade at someone and his mm. rap and then the next rap comes out from the other dude throwing shots back. I just, it's so beneath me. I could not care less about these diss tracks. And... You know, as much as I don't have any strong ill will against Taylor Swift, a lot of her work just seems like diss tracks <laughs> to all the people she's dated. Yeah, so I, I just couldn't it's care less. Quite a, quite a commonplace pop culture joke, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. No. Well, you can't deny that. It's like, I know a lot of people love her, and it's like, you can still love something or someone, but admit if their work is, has a very similar, yeah, I, look, feel I really, to it all. I really struggled with. Um, I don't know if I couldn't tell you which episode we talked about Miss Americana on here. If I had to guess, um, it would be around the Uncut Gems era. Yeah. Um, Early and January. I really struggled with watching that because of just the level of self like that self-aggrandizing and, and um, kind of patting on the back. And really, at time, it was quite... I find her quite frustrating to... Um, watch and it's it's tough with musicians because I think musicians they all have doesn't matter where they're from they all have this real finite balance between healthy ego and that sort of just arrogant self-centeredness and yeah um it's I've had an array of when I've watched musicians some of them I can't stand because they just think they're above everything else and then you've got 
some that are really just craft craftsmen hmm. um, that just work their craft and are very humble in what they do. And for them, it's an interpersonal, it's a personal experience. And to have a look into their world is actually not about showing them how complicated and difficult their life is. It's actually because they've granted that access into their life because they're quite private. And I find those experiences to be better when it comes to music, biographical documentaries or experiences, I think. Um, And it's interesting with like these sort of um, 10 to 15 minute music videos, music films. Right. Um, This is not a short film. It's a music video. It's a long music video um, with one dialogue scene in the middle. And it definitely seems... I'm not that angry about it. I just no, like the, I, I find it interesting. It's <laughs> like... Because um, it's sort of like a couple of years ago when um, Charles Gambino did his, like, This Is America, um, mm. which was an elongated video that had a lot of commentary. I haven't seen it still, yeah. Um, and there's definitely... I, I think the bar for music videos has gone through the roof. Like, I, I think it's... Hmm. The, the, the quality in terms of its cinematography, artistic expression is huge. And... Um, they are spectacles often, but, and yeah, some of them tell stories and stuff, but it's like, like you said, it's, where's the, where's the line from, is this just a music death, a music video with a little bit more depth, um, or is it a a film? And most of the, I'd say 95% of the time, they're just music videos with a bit more depth, you know, they've got a bit more. One, like you said, I, I agree with you. One one dialogue scene and telling a visual story accompanied by music is just a music video. That's the conventional... That is conventionally what yeah. a music video is. Which is so... I agree with you. I think artistically, music videos are where it's at in a lot of ways, yeah. especially through visual storytelling. So like you're not that's the, not a slant at all. Yeah. I just don't think this is a short film. Yeah. No. no I agree with that consensus. Yeah. Because like... So, basically, what you're saying is it shouldn't really be on something like Letterbox, really. I don't mind it. I think I would love to have music video. There was a big thing, like, a month or two ago where they actually allowed pornos to be on Letterbox now. I actually think that's... I'm totally okay with that. Okay. That's fine. As long as, like, people understand and embrace the differences. Well, I, I don't want there to be a hard cutoff between what's a film and what's not a film. Okay. Like, I don't mind this is on Letterbox. Hey, is there any, any excuse for me to log a film on Letterbox? <laughs> I'll take it, you know? Sure, sure. <laughs> but that, that, look, I just, I needed to put it out there because I watched it. I was expecting something good based on the hype, but I was I was a bit disappointed. I was like, the, the relationship depicted here is not specific enough for me to understand what she's trying to say about gaslighting and, you know, power dynamics between age-gapped couples other than the fact that they exist, which I already knew. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's that's about it. But, hey, whatever. I'm glad people enjoying it. I'm glad people are taking something away from it. But I didn't. Well, I think our conversation <laughs> about the 10-minute film man. was longer than the actual film itself. So. I was getting there. I was getting there. <laughs> so let, let's cut it off before that happens. Sure. Zeke, what have you been watching the last week? So I still haven't broke the not watching anything but the film of the week drought, but that this will hopefully be the last week this happens. Actually, no, I lie. I did watch a film other than the film of the Woo! week. Oh boy, here we go. Um, I'll start with the good, and then we'll finish with that film. So I did watch one other film. For a uh, second, I thought you were going to say, based on the one film you've seen, you're going to start with the good and then end with the bad. <laughs> I actually managed to watch, um, start watching the, I think it's a pretty, I think it's the last two weeks it's come out, um, the live adaptation of Cowboy Bebop, um, which, for those who don't know, 
because I didn't know and got explained to. I watched this with a friend of the show, Liam, um, who is a big fan of his anime, um, big fan of his, got a lot of opinions. And um, <laughs> uh, I had to convince him because, and I agree with his consensus, for, for the most part, Netflix live adaptations of Japanese anime products have been horrifically bad um, mm-hmm. and very poor. Um, Dragon Ball Evolution. <laughs> um, apparently there's an Attack on Titan, which I have seen episodes of that and really enjoyed it. There's a Bleach one, Slender Man, all these... I don't even know Slender Man. Um, uh, <laughs> Death, Death Note. Death That's Book. the one I was thinking Death of, Note. yeah. Um, so I got, I got... Here's the thing. I was telling a friend about this or... No, one of my friends, he was playing the theme on his piano and of course I didn't recognise it. And sort of everyone in the room turned like, you haven't seen... It's Death Note, yeah? Like, you haven't seen it. What the hell? I'm like, but I didn't think I... Mm. I didn't realise this well, was like a big deal. I think you <laughs> and I have talked about this on the show. We're obviously... And we've only done one... Um, We're not weebs here. Yeah. Cinema Sideshow Podcast. Not to use that word. We're just not really into that genre, I think. I think right. it's really never been... Like, we like the, the Miyazaki stuff from, you know... Like, oh, yeah. Spirit Away is a masterpiece. Um, and I watched, I watched a lot of anime growing up. Like, I mean, obviously, like, Dragon Ball and Pinocchio. Uh, Pinocchio. Pikachu. Pikachu. Pokemon. Pokemon, Pokemon Jesus. <laughs> Pokemon, people. Um, like, the obvious ones. Like, I've seen... You, you, I loved you, Initial so D. I think they call them... They, they're, like, Western animes, though. They're, they're the ones Yeah, they're, the, too, they're like watching Marvel films when you're like, I'm a film connoisseur. Yeah. It's like, it was, yeah, you've seen Marvel films good. Like, um, but have you seen real... Like I guess anime. So we're, we're, we're I, totally I, okay with saying we're Western anime people. We like the English. We don't... Yeah. Do the subtitles. But I stand um, initial D as well. Just heads up. Um, <laughs> but so I didn't know anything about Cowboy Bebop. Apart from, I know that I'm a big fan of Firefly and it's basically the thing that came before Firefly that everyone thinks Firefly copied. Which, to be honest, upon watching even just the live a- a- adaptation first episode, I was like, I can kind of see where they're coming from with this. <laughs> it's almost like... It's got a lot going on, and it really, especially now, knowing with Josh Whedon, especially, sort of a lot of the negative press around him. Some of his original ideas were not that original. Like, and I love Buffy and I love Angel, but a lot of the best, like, a lot of episodes were kind of just borrowing from hokey things that had been better, like not betterly done, but they were definitely drew inspiration. Lacked pure original thought sometimes. Right. Um, it was- Is that why people like Buffy? Because it was original. I think Buffy's you know what I mean just though. Fun, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, like, were no, they praised I, for their originality? I, just, I, I like, I don't know. I, Josh Whedon, I mean, this what reaction I give. Sorry, um, he's cancelled shru- anyway. Shru- we don't have to like him. Um, <laughs> but uh, I really liked Firefly. But it's yeah, it's sort of in the same same boat. Um, this was a lot of fun. This obviously stars John Woo, who's actually kind of the only real big name going into this. Obviously, John Woo from. Uh, kind of big films that came out last searching we've talked about and like yeah, praised on the great. show um uh, harold and kumar is the other major thing i can think of <laughs> from him look he's done a lot of stuff but he, he he obviously this is really cool to see him on this and from what i gather from the creative process because it does definitely keep a lot of those anime conventions in the sense of the way they shoot it they play around with the camera a bit more a lot of the casting was authentic so they chose less name recognition, more mm. what actually did this character look like? We're getting someone to look like the, the closest live adaptation. And then on top of that, it's like um, 
apparently most of the cast, and I did watch a couple of videos on this, they adored the source material. Yeah. So, and they that's always big ticks. And the authenticity to want to bring the source material to a live adaptation stage. Obviously, there are little things like there were 24 episodes of the, the show. I think there's only nine on the Netflix show. And I'm three in. Um, so they dropped them all at once. Mm. Okay. So... Obviously, they've condensed some things, realigned things, so it you know, can hit in the time constraints. Um, obviously, it was 24, 20-minute episodes versus this is nine 40-minute episodes. So there's still... Right. There's just compression occasionally parts. So basically, it's... But there, a lot of the episodes, like the, the episodes from the anime, are actually put into this, this show in their life. They're just retold and altered appropriately, I think. Um, and, you know... My weeb consultant was enjoying the show. Um, that says a lot. Which is good. But it's like, at the, at the same time, I was like saying to him, I was like, fact of the matter is that the reason this show exists or Netflix constantly trying to do this, or even not just Netflix, but um, did you hear about what they're thinking of doing with the, the like the last Airbender live adaptation? Oh God. I, I know that's a dragon. They're Dragon Ball evolution. They're going to make all the kids in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Like they're gonna, and I just, I don't understand this. This is like where I would probably lead with this conversation, Jake. Is, um, <laughs> why do we think that that's appropriate? <laughs> like, if we're trying to kind of, I don't know, because we're obviously at that point, you, you, you're doing what we were talking about. You're either you're pissing off the original audience, uh, the original target audience, right? And yep. then on top of that, you're probably going to suffer an overall product deficit for the, your new audience too. Like I've enjoyed the show and yeah, I'm sure I, I was trying to explain that, that it's really important that we watch shows like this live adaptation in isolation from the anime it's based off. Like that can be better, but it's not, this is this one over here, the live adaptation is not worse because that was better. It's worse because of things wrong with it. It's not worse because it's inferior to its source material, I think. Right. Well, I feel, I feel like using double negatives in that sense. I get what you're saying. You're basically saying, like, you shouldn't hate a show because it's not the same as a source material. Yeah. You should hate it because if it's trying to do the same thing but not as well, then it's a failure. Like, sure. I'm talking about, like, thematically. Like, it doesn't okay. have to be, this character looks like this character. I'm saying, like, an overarching, like, what are the themes of the show? Mm. And does it does it translate it and tell that story in an interesting or better way than the original? As opposed to just, oh, the, the color of that character's jacket has changed. I don't like this. I agree. Yeah. No, cool. that's fair enough. That's it's fair a good enough. show. I've actually enjoyed it so far. Do I sound, like, angry today? I feel like I'm no, like I energetic say, you, today. No, I, I, I think, like, I, I don't disagree. I do think that it's important that it's, like, like, for example, I've just talked about some of the things that are automatically different between its live adaptation and its source material. Yeah. Those are not grounds to hate that show. If you don't like sure. that show, fair enough. But you have to give me reasons why it in isolation is not good. Not because, oh, well, it happened like this in this one. Yeah. And that's not the same. So thus it's not the, it's not good. It's like, no, no. It, 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 if it was done better, if it, like, I agree with you what you're saying. Yeah. If it's done better. Story is it's clarity or um, transparency or just fluidity. Yeah, of course it's better. But it's been fun, honestly. And you can tell the actors really want to be as close to their source material. They really like the source material. They care about it. And you can see it when they're performing. Yeah. Because this is not just some dumb hokey sci-fi that they're getting work off. Because a lot of them 
I don't know any of their name. Like they're, they're not name recognition based um, casting. Right. Well, it could be for a lot of them. It could be the biggest thing they've ever worked on. Yeah. Got Netflix production of this thing. And, and... It, you can feel it. It feels like that labor of love. Mm. Um, I think there's a couple of guest appearances from bigger. I think Jay Bershanol comes on for an episode. Oh, cool. Um, I haven't got to it yet, but predominantly, yeah, John Woo's the biggest name on it. Yeah, you know, Ed Sheeran's in Red Notice. <laughs> I saw the try. I Jesus, I think Ryan Reynolds is taking the piss now. <laughs> right, like you hear, you hear Dwayne Johnson wants to be the next Bond. Oh my god! He stuck his hand up for it. Yeah, pff, bloody him and Dave Bautista stick their hand up for anything that has a dollar sign printed on it. I mean, look, I'm not saying the Rock is chasing the money; he doesn't need to. No, he's not. But he's just chasing like ego. It's like, it's like I'm sorry, but the Rock wanting to be like Bond is like me putting my hand up and be like, "Can I be the next Miles Morales Spider Man?" It's like, no, you cannot. <laughs> It's like, no, you cannot. Please stop talking. <laughs> the, the lack of subtlety that, like, it, Dwayne, picturing Dwayne Johnson walking into a casino and, like, it's him, Bond. he's walking James around, Bond. he's six foot five. He's, like, absurdly huge. Like, the, does he not realize he was put in those Fast and Furious movies because he fits that. I feel like you know the funniest it's thing because is he's bigger than the I cars. legitimately think John Cena is the only one of those professional wrestlers that knows like where he can be cast and what he's good at. Yeah, like and actually respects that. That's the con. That's the the confines in which he can operate. The Rock. The Rock is never gonna do. Or I should say Dwayne Johnson. He's never gonna do a role like John Cena did in the Suicide Squad, where you walk yeah. out being like, "Damn, he played that pretty well." Yeah. Like, oh, Dwayne Johnson's in this. Yeah. Like I'm not going to compliment anything that doesn't it. I'm just I honestly think that he's it's in like it. the best casting Dwayne Johnson ever had in a more serious role was Pain and Gain. It's a Michael Bay film. <laughs> like, can you believe that? Like, <laughs> it's just crazy to me. Like to think that like, they think that, that. I'm sorry, but it's like every. It's like every when you're when you have physical traits that are so dominant in what constructs the visual appeal of a person. It also narrows your casting. It does. It literally does. Like, and that that applies to everyone. Andre the Giant. It's yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> it's, you know what he did? He you did Princess Princess Bond. <laughs> we did. You didn't see him in Princess Bride playing the guy who could sword fight really well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Neil Montoya. <laughs> like, God, you know, you know what does work? John Coffey in the Green Mile. That's how you subvert expectations. Yeah. Not The Rock plays Bond. Can you imagine Dwayne Johnson playing John Coffey? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Green Mile remake. It's called The Green Rock. Picture <laughs> <laughs> Sean Connery being like, "This is oh The Rock." Oh my god, we need to we need to deep fake this. <laughs> this might be the this might be the uh, funniest segment we've ever done. Oh my god, I'm on glad this, we went on this, this tangent. It was worth it. I think it was a really, but it was kind of talking about the the stupidity of cast. Casting I, is such I, an... I get you. I get you. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> the other... So I've, I'm about to wrap up Parks and Rec. I'm on the last season now. So that was an oh, nice. absolute burning river. It's funny now because I'm in mid-season six. And season six is the season Chris Pratt got cast. Star-Lord. I started shooting. Mm, okay. Guardians. So he's all big and muscular now. So he's completely, between five and six, undergone this physical transformation, which is just... Fa- and they kind of like briefly make a mention of it where it's like oh 
how have you suddenly gotten really fit? And he's like, I stopped drinking beer. And then they're like, did you drink beer that much? He went, yeah, I did drink beer that much. And it, in his char- character, Andy, it kind of makes sense. But it's like, yeah. it is interesting that it's like, season six, you can see there's a turning, a slight shift that a lot of these, what once were like SNL regulars and, and very micro, started getting other offers elsewhere. And right. it's starting to... to take up some of their time um you know chris pratt being the biggest of all of them but the others are definitely on that on that verge too um i think rashida jones leaves at the end of season six and there's only one more season so to shoot a 10-year project of on the rocks we're bringing up the rock again yeah can't get away so the only other film i watched oh boy here we go I watched He's All That. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, um, no. So, to follow up Cowboy Bebop, obviously, we watched uh, Drink to Cringe. <laughs> Drink to Cringe. And it just happened to be the opposite. What is this called? It's the mirrored version of She's it's, All That? It's, yeah, it's the gender swap version. It's probably the best way to put it. Where he, they do him this in makeup now. This film was probably the most appalling I've seen all year. <laughs> Um, and that's competing against Kissing Booth 3, might I add. Um, so, four power... Congratulations. Uh, he's all that. You have somehow managed to knock off Kissing Booth 3, uh, which I didn't think could be done. Um, it's horrific. But it was so it was so nice to find a new horrific film to just... It was so nice, he says. <laughs> Jake, you've got to just come and get on board with these oh, films. Oh They're just God. terrible. Between, like... Their weird over reliance almost... of social media, mm, mm. which is just sometimes it's just a gluttony of ground. You know, it's funny. I remember when you were in the post production process of Disconnected, and I was like, "Oh, we needed some graphics on the screen while they're texting to just fill up the space." Now, every time I see graphics on screens, I oh, want to no, die. Things of Disconnected. <laughs> like, to, be, to be fair, no, because no, was... it's a gluttony now. It's not. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not a couple of quirky little nice hand drawn. Because that's like over adds, the pop. That's a little flair, you know. I think of like uh, the F word or what if, you know, with the little right. little graphic flares and that. Yeah, that was, that was a reference. Um, I looked at like Wimpy Kid as well, and yeah, Wimpy Kid like, does things it well like too, that. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's really ingrained in it. Um, well, that that was a case of um, like because we didn't shoot it with that in mind to have like a little graphics over the screen, but then so I think it was actually James of all people. He was the one that said like, oh, it's a little. I'm tempted to click into other tabs during those scenes when they're just texting. I was like, oh, I need more visual something or other. Mm. And that's where it came from. But um, you're right. I think there's an over-reliance on it now. Some, and now it's like places. their whole scenes now where they're doing Skype calls and they're intersecting. And I'm just yeah. like, there is no creativity here. They think they're being creative, but they're actually being incredibly boring. Mm. Like, it's I'm sorry, but texting and streaming films... They're not interesting. No one finds... I mean, even people that love watching streams or doing streams mm. find the idea of a film doing it. I mean, I talk, we compare this, and we talk a free guy, like the whole bit where they got all the, the YouTube oh, celebrities that was, reacting. That was, that was hard, tough to watch. It's <laughs> just cringy. It's like, we almost... Like, if anything, it's like a, like a realisation that Jesus... We spend our lives watching other people. Like it's that Bo Burnham inside skit. Yeah, with when he's doing yeah, the, the re 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 reaction. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I, I did see a funny comment because it was something like this new streamer. She's now like the most subscribed female on Twitch or whatever. And the top comments are going to be like, "I don't get the fascination with watching streams. It's like it's like when your older brother is playing a game, but he won't give you the controller." That's exactly. <laughs> I have never got a, it. It was a good comment. Like, 
I used to, I actually kind of understood why Let's Plays were funny because Let's Plays were edited versions for comedic right. effect. It was a collection of different screens in which people would do things and it would be funny. But even looking back on that, I'm like, why did I find these so funny? Because I'm not participating in it. But it was because at least it was a bit more of a constructed narrative. Like, over two hours of recording, they'd give you a 40-minute Let's Play. Yeah. Where it's I mean, hi- even that's long. But yeah, like, if it's entertaining and they've cut the fun parts out, or the only the fun parts in, and you're right, like, watching a stream, it's like you're watching people go through menus half the time. Like, it's, and usually, I'm sorry, usually these rumors are bored out of their Which minds. Is, I was gonna, sad. And I was going to say, <laughs> it's really interesting to think about because it's like we live in a world where the attention span is astronomically getting smaller. And yet, like, we're watching three-hour streams where nothing's happening. Yeah. <laughs> How does yeah. that work? But it's, apparently the Irishman is too long, Zeke. It's too long. It's too it's, long. No one can do it. It doesn't break. It breaks my brain. But it sucked. <laughs> It sucked. Um, nothing redeeming about it. It was cringy. It had inappropriate subtone. It just did everything a drink to cringe film should achieve. So congrats. <laughs> it's it gets on the the premium of that list when you need a film to cringe at so much. You need a letterbox list of the best drink to. I cringe. do. I, you know what I mm-hmm. do. Maybe <laughs> and you know what I'll do. Maybe well at our end of year awards, I'll present my my ten from twenty twenty one that you should watch. Oh no! Um, on Netflix, Zeke's uh, drink drink to cringe uh, list of yeah. terrible terrible movies. They're amazing. Oh no! They're amazing. Oh no! Watch out, Annette. You might come on that list. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, that's all the I've Annette watched for now. This continues. Week. Cool. Too easy. No worries. Well, it is time for us to move into, well, unless you've got any career updates. Well, I was going to give a little shout out to the Final Draft 12, <coughs> which I just bought and my voice just got lost for a second. No, it's cool. Get it. Final Draft 12. It's a good little script writing. Black Friday sales currently. Yeah, yeah. So I got it for 35% off. So I only got it for like 200 bucks. And it's a flat rate. You get to keep it, which is great. Um, so, And as someone who's been using cell text for the last few years to write my scripts, pretty easy to, to translate in terms of the hotkeys and the keyboard and things like that. But just a lot of niceties in there especially if you really want to like layer your script before the you know the index cards behind it but where did you hear about final draft jake well i've i've heard about it before it's like industry standard but it's my mate jared who's uh currently uh, getting paid to be a script advisor on local sets and um he he was the one that's like you should try and get it so shout out to jared (laughs) good on you jared the podcast well, it is time for us to move into our... I've already updated my career stuff. Film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke. We're watching before sunset. Let me sing you a waltz Out of nowhere Out of my thoughts Let me sing you a waltz About this one night stand I don't care what they say 
Ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet each other for the first time since then. Now they only have one afternoon to find out if they belong together. Mm. Do they, they, tell me right now, do they belong together? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting logline. I'm not really sure if I agree with it. I have a different logline on my thing where it talks about they cross paths again for a single day in Paris. Together they try to find out what might have happened if they had acted on their feelings. I prefer that one. Which I think that's a more accurate one. Yeah. 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 Which I avoided altogether last week because I wanted you to know nothing going in to this. Yeah, it's... Look, I respect. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, Got you to predict what you thought was going to happen. You didn't I, do too bad. I, yeah, I thought you were kind of, That's why I said it was interesting. I, I thought you were kind of on the money. Yeah. Sort of different location... They haven't seen each other in nine years, although you did say that they, there was some sort of communication or contact in there. Mm, which uh, there or wasn't. that they arranged to, which not they didn't really arrange to. No. Although there was some well, communication. There was definitely a targeted chance encounter, I would yeah. say. Is probably the, um, well, I think... The character of um, Celine, definitely. Well, yeah, for Celine. Positioned but I, herself, and he also, I There would is argue, a line... That, yeah, right, that Jesse has, I think is a joke, but like also kind of in the back of his head, like that wishful feeling. Yeah, I, I can definitely say, I think Jesse made it like the last stop on a tour. There's a, there's intention there, uh, or at least an optimism, which they talk about from his book. Yeah, yeah, so the film, of course, opens with sort of a a reflection on the original film's ending in particular, which I think is very interesting. And yeah, they kind of talk about what makes it so special and that are you a cynic or are you a romantic and, and how you sort of perceive the ending of the film. They explore that a bit. Yeah, it's definitely got a, a meta, a, particularly the first 20 minutes and I, I'd like to emphasise, I think it's actually the first 16 minutes to be specific. Okay. It has a metaphysical reflection, I think, of it um, starting at the bookshop and leading up to the cafe seating. That's where that opening basically the whole first act happens in that first 16 minutes you know right like the call to actions established at that point um and the journey begins but what i like about that first 16 minutes i think it's one of not if not my favorite opening like in terms of setting stakes and mm. creating tension a degree of uncomfortability not in a bad way but in a I don't know where to start or go with these characters because mm. I'm as equally taken aback by this opportunity because, you know, it, if one thing I've liked about both these films, although they're separated nine years apart, the intrinsic um, and embedded human emotions allow you to almost purely wholeheartedly emphasize with one of the characters yep. completely or both at times. Mm. Um, and that envelopment into the story is what emotionally moves you through both of them for different reasons. Like when that meeting came up, all I'm thinking of is what if I was in Jesse or Celine's position right now? Yeah. Yeah. And especially as the film unfolds and we really explore what has happened in the last nine years to both characters, it just compounds more. Cause you know, um, we, we talked about um, on the first, our one forty episode, how we were both 23 watching that. 
Yeah, for the first time, yeah. And now we're now watching two 32-year-olds. We're both mm. 24. Yeah. Um, and I think without getting too into the weeds, because we're obviously not going to talk about Midnight yet, as you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. We'll just get to that when we will. But I think there's definitely an aspect of this whole trilogy where, at least the way I felt, is that I was getting further removed from the relatability as the films went on. Um, that means that there's a ton in this film that I 1,000% can relate I to. Agree. That we That we both will, I imagine. I think it comes back to the journey that they undergo over the course of their 20s is mm. the important part of that. And really, when they're 23, they've got a little... Eye. What we like, what we liked about the first film is we talked about how we like that they're not like a fresh 18 or 19. So they haven't got na- the naivete of an 18 or 19-year-old. Yeah, they still they, have the naive... young adults. Yeah, they're, they're, they're still a little naive and optimistic, which they address in this film, which I really like, or even romantic in that mm. film. And reality, the reality hammer has slowly <laughs> beat chipping them, away, at chipping them away. <laughs> and there's definitely a self awareness to that, in which you they probably underwent that self awareness over the course of their twenties. It's not that they've gotten to thirty two and they've suddenly arrived at that notion. Yeah, we're just peeking in. Yeah, we're just seeing what's slowly happening exactly. over nine years, and especially because what's so genius about the film's structure is it's it's entirely related to the fact that they both have these big shields on. They're both emotionally protecting themselves, mm-hmm. you know, from the moment they first meet and they sort of have like their kiss on the cheek moment. Um, but the film is slowly chipping away at their shields. They're both emotional wrecks by the mm. end of the film because you realize, despite the, the facade that they put on, yeah. just how emotionally wrecked they are from a night that once was, nine years ago, that has never been repeated and they've never been able to recapture that. And what I like about it is it doesn't feel... What I like about this film is, is one, and this is a huge point of addressing why I think this film is just magnificent, is it is purely in real time. We get... It's 80-something minutes and it's 80 minutes collect. Like, that's the life runtime. Yeah. And so the fragility of both those characters is apparent even from the moment they meet each other. Um, and yeah, they do have shields, but it's still a trance. It's, it's almost like they, out of courtesy for the other person and themselves, yeah. they don't want to break that defense down at all, but it's, they both can see the residual. I mean, from the moment she read the book and he wrote a book about her, yeah. the, we know that this interaction is just, the tension is just palpable from the moment they get going. And, yeah, they start off with the more conventional, oh, let's just update each other in our life. But they... Well, they're playing it cool in a lot of ways. (laughs) I I don't think I've enjoyed an experience like this. And I'm going to play... I enjoy this film more than the first one. Yeah, Um, that's nuts. um, That is nuts. I love that. And what I love about this film is it rewards you for watching the first film, but it takes it that step further. This film could stand on its own two feet as a film with a little tweak of the script here or there. Mm. Because the premise makes sense. Two people fell in love. And what I love about and what really sells it is in the opening when, when Jesse's being asked these questions and we get flashes from the first film. Yeah. These little flashbacks, which don't have to... And, and what would back up what I'm going to talk about is we've had it on another episode and we've talked about this. Blue Jays ties to is definitely more prominently tied to this film yep. in which we watched that film 
which is 80-something minutes yeah. in length too. Yeah, very short as well. It's yeah. set over a night. I mean, at least there are time skips or a day. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is real time. It's it's an 80-minute film takes place over maybe four hours, five hours. Yeah, with exclusion well, uh, to the end. They do, yeah, okay. I'll um, take that back. So, but the the real beef of it, like 60 of 65 of the minutes is over like, yeah, like you said, four or five hours. Yeah. And then there's, I think, 10 minutes at the end. That, well, I think the best way to compare it is... In terms of the time length, it's more like before sunrise. Mm-hmm. It takes place over 12 hours, realistically. But in terms of the uh, types of conversations they're having and the situation that the couple are in, it's more like sunset. Great. Yeah, that's a good way. Of, yeah. Great way of framing it. Um, and they proved that, that you didn't need the prequel to understand the, you know, like you didn't need right. the, the predetermined, that they just talked about them. We knew that they were a couple in high school and now that they've got this, mm. this it's the fallout from all that. And obviously there is an underlying truth in, in Blue Jay that gets uncovered, which, you know, going back to episode 20. It's like 29 or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a while ago now. Um, so this is the, what is it? What did we just say? It's the CSU? The C- the CSU, yeah. The, so, the Cinematic Sideshow Podcast. Really, for this universe. before conversation, you need 2140 and 149. There's, 29. A, there's a lot of... And Fantastic uh, Mr. Fox for like that one reference. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the For the Dark World leading into Endgame. Yeah. Uh, for that like one little reference. But. Um, and I think it's really interesting because... Um, yeah, I think this film could stand on itself. It's, it's about two people that fell in love with the start of one de- mm. um, decade and are now in the next decade and they're trying to gauge whether they still have that sort of romantic connection while also talking um, talking about the introspective um, their in, you know their respective lives and, and how that's affected them internally and mm. externally and how the world around them has moved and changed it, it covers nearly everything it almost uh, what I love is the progression like yeah the, the barriers are up but the barriers are up in, in the most conventional ways they ask about what they do for livings and what sort of their world views are and stuff like that right yeah now. yeah it, that leads perfectly the thing i was going to say is that the, the conversations are much more matured you know we talked a bit about like the mumblecore movement and stuff like that for the first film and how their conversations are very sporadic and they cover like 30 different topics in five minutes and mm-hmm. i like that in this one you can tell their conversation they're a little more streamlined they're a little more political. Mm-hmm. It's just a little more organic, like yeah. naturally. It feels. I like the maturity that's shown through that, and I love. This is a subtle thing, and again, I don't like comparing these films um, because even even I want to say right now, I prefer the first one over the second one. But even that, I keep going back and forth because the things I would argue I liked better, they juxtapose very deliberately. And what I want to comment about their maturity in this film is the background characters almost don't exist. You look at the first film and you have, you know, street performers and all these people mm. coming in and out and interacting with them and it's a, it's about the the spontaneity of the night. And they don't talk to anyone in this film. No. All the extras just walk right past them. They don't say a word. Like, yeah, they, they get a ticket onto the boat. But, like, they don't talk to people. They say to hi to Celine's neighbours as they... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's not like an interruption. No, and I think... It's not like the poet or the palm reader. Exactly, exactly. And I think that speaks to the maturity and the fact that we're now... You know, we're not in nighttime, exciting Vienna. We're in obviously a much more calm, warmer side of Paris. But you could argue that that makes the film a little bit more empty, especially because there's a lot less... Um, angles. It's a lot of extended oneers and very mm. simple shot, reverse shot. But I think that the decision to do that 
is so specific and works so well for where these characters are emotionally, yeah. you have to appreciate it. I you think just have to. I, I, my counter in defense and why I think this film is more effective because it doesn't do that. Um, yeah. I is... love that it doesn't do no, that. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Well, I don't, I'm not saying you're not, but it's like yeah. the, the importance, I think, of the, is it comes back to the thesis of this. I mean, in the first 10 minutes, we find out he went and she didn't. Yeah. So at that point, we know that there's still affirmation for each other. I mean, everything in the first 10 minutes of this film, no, we know Jesse still has feelings for Celine. And if anything, it's trying to explore where Celine's head's at more than anything. And Um, that almost feels like the arc. I want to jump two ahead, but it feels like the arc because the first thing we find out is Jesse wrote a book about this night and that he's, he's channeled that experience and put it into a book or a form of art he's written about it and at the end of the film we find out that Celine has done the exact same thing just as a song not a book so you're right I think very clearly we're following it from Jesse's point of view of he clearly still loves her but we're trying to gauge her thoughts. We're unsure about what her shield is, yeah. and that's slowly chipped away as well by the yeah. end of the film. I, I I think it's it's really interesting because it's there's so he always was the character that we said in the first one. You know, he's a bit more erratic, and he's he's definitely um, more okay to speak his mind for better or worse. Yeah. Um, uh, he's quite critical of of things in the first one without not having you know too much education if anything he's kind of uh, he occasionally plays the dumb american you know yeah. like the, that's what he's going for you know? <laughs> um celine is is a, a character that constantly has internal conflict like real identity crises between has the strong and backs it up the strong independent woman persona yet is incredibly frustrated by her what she perceives as times as romantic flaws mm. um, because, you know, and it, it definitely comes to the surface in the car when she's yep. talking about all the men that she's dated are now married and she's still alone and she wants to be alone, but she doesn't want to be alone. And yeah, the con- the know. conflict of wanting to be a strong independent woman, but still having like those, I don't want to call them urges, but you're right. There's like, there's still a, a very basic desire right there that she can't get a grasp on. Yeah. Romantic connection is a tough thing to, like, it's it's not a, a mm. tangible thing, or nor is it. A, and I think um, I what I like about this this film is yeah, it's trying to gauge that understanding of where this relationship is at in the first half of the film, and then it then shifts from okay, they've established where their relation's at. Now, where's it going to go? Is mm. there's almost at the almost at the perfect midpoint <laughs> is where the shift happens, and it happens on that park bench. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, right. And because I know you were counting the time codes. Yeah, saying, this is the first time I've ever time coded a film. <laughs> the only one I did here, and this goes back into the shields, the idea that they're keeping sec- not secrets from each other, but he lied about going to the train station to spare her feelings, to not reveal that you know he was at that emotional or vulnerable place. But it's like th- there's th- plenty of things they're keeping secrets from each other. The fact that she doesn't remember, pretending to not remember they had sex that night. Things like that, but the one that I thought was very interesting, exactly at the midpoint, forty minutes in, when we find out he has a family, he has a wife, he has and a kids. wife and a kid, yeah, yeah, and it's like, and the funny thing about it is, Celine, this is not like played off as a reveal, a dramatic reveal. Oh, he's been lying the whole time. No, he wasn't. She, she brings it up because <laughs> it was in an article. 
Yeah. A yeah. public article. So he knows going into that conversation with her where he's at and where she's at. She's like, obviously she openly says, I read that article very early on, um, which means in the article we got the information. It was the yeah. fact that they would, I not it was not even done in an accusatory way. It was done in a, I, even she wanted to withhold the information. She didn't want to know, yeah, like, confirm yeah. that truth to herself by saying it aloud. And that's what I loved about that moment because it goes both ways because he then goes, oh, are you dating someone? And she's like, yeah. Yeah, the wartime um, photographer. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, Do you love him? Uh, yeah, of course. Like it, It's like yes, this immediate, yes, like, oh, yes. suddenly we went from, are these two available? Is yeah. this a moment? To, to, oh, they're both completely unavailable. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Our lives are sorted. We're sorted. And it goes back to her comment of like, oh, you know, when I read that piece, I thought you were per- like you, you know, you you were a successful author. You're traveling the world. You have a wife and a son, and yada yada. Like that that picture perfect idea she had of him. Mm. That it, it almost makes her decision to actually show up at the at the book meeting even more interesting, because it seems like there is no desire. She's like, oh, she just wants to see this old friend and you know hear about this book that was written about her. And that she doesn't really know how deep his desire goes to the point where he's he's been dreaming about it he thinks about it on the way to his own wedding like it gets so deep it's fascinating right mm. there's just so many layers to it i think the fact that it comes after the book's aftermath and not before is just so critical in setting up the right way that it goes because you don't write something that personal about someone without having mm. the feelings for it which is why i said we we as the audience at least from an a, from a objective discourse point of view, we know he still has feelings for her. Yeah. Like we can read the signs. No one writes that story and, and tries to channel that. And I think what it's interesting about exploring Jesse and this is the, like why he wrote this book, because yeah, the, what we gather is he went back to that spot and was rejected for obviously circumstances beyond mm. either of their control. Yep. The death of Celine's grandma who was openly brought up in the first film was an important figure. and Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, you so, kind of felt that when you're like, oh, crap, I know this person. Yeah. yeah. So it's... Um, and, of course, because, you know, because neither of them gave each other numbers and there was no notification, he stayed, he went, went along his way. And then we discover she went to America for a couple of years in New mm. York. Which I think is interesting because they talk about that and the fact that he might have actually literally seen her driving past that one time. Um and yeah, it's a commentary like they didn't keep track on that. But I, I found this is an interesting commentary about this idea of destiny, that they were yeah. destined to be together. And it's like, well, if that were the case, they would have met then and there. Yeah. As opposed to it took one of them, i.e. Celine, to actively chase after Jesse in that finding out where he was going to be and when. The, the chance, the yeah. force to the chance. Yeah, well, to create the interaction. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I just found that an interesting commentary on, on that yeah. idea. But I think it's like intense, really interesting with this because it, it's such a perfect balance of romantic tension and and the pursue for that that romantic truth. With both of them at this point, had feel like they've lost mm. because they both of them even think and that that night pretty much defined their romantic constructs as people. I mean, yeah. Jesse ended up marrying someone that he was constantly in and out of relationships over the course of. Of, of his life and the only thing that keeps him in that relationship is his kid because of his love for an affirmation for his kid yeah um, which is really interesting when juxtaposed with the outlook that that he had on marriage in the first film 
with how mm. he, you know, was saying, why do people stay together? Um, my parents hate, you know, he's talking about how his parents despised each other and stayed together and yeah. talked about how stupid that was and then ended up repeating the exact same thing. Because then that's where his maturity came in. Obviously, he realized, well, he was the reason why they probably did. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, just that, that cycle was sort of almost repeating itself. And I think that speaks to the wider concept. And, and this goes back to the whole idea of a trilogy and how, you know, you said you reckon with just a couple of little tweaks, this would totally work as a standalone film. And while I'm sure it could, you know, with the right tweaks, but this whole trilogy and the way it comments on time specifically... Um, love obviously but also time I think is so intertwined mm-hmm. for lack of a better word um, that the reason I love this trilogy so much and it doesn't feel like your typical sequel in any stretch of the imagination it feels such it feels like such a natural continuation of the ideas present and the fact that they have these fears that um, about their parents that they can only experience themselves when they grow up and yeah. get older and that continues well into the third film as well without spoiling anything. Um, it's brilliant. And I love the way the films all complement each other in that way specifically. Yeah. It's wonderful. I think it's... <laughs> and it's a, it is a really... It's biggest um, acclaims definitely come from those... It's, it's way of getting this all within um, 80 minutes and mm. really showing time is almost... Um, time is a huge factor in this you know he's only got so much time until a very literal ticking clock for the ticking clock (laughs) um so when it when we get to the end and they sort of try and find little nuanced ways of extending that that time yeah um it really starts to show that the the switch in movement from well but um, particularly jesse's methods of extending time oh let's jump on this boat oh i'll give you a lift oh let me come up and see something like those are the things but the fact that she is very easily persuaded to do that. Yeah. Like, she's like, oh, you're going to miss your flight, but all right, fine. <laughs> yeah. I, the little I, hints that she's still into it. The shift definitely comes, at, and that's where the, like I said, that midpoint is when we, t- this is almost like, it's almost a film of two acts, really, rather than three. Um, you could argue there is a, like a mm. conventional three-act structure in it, but I think it's really two because it's, it just shifts the idea shifts um from that moment when they both reveal their relationships because then they start to get explore those relationships it's almost like by letting them into the fact that they had these other relationships they can start to deconstruct why Hmm. so easily for at first why so easily jesse was willing to throw away his marriage for spontaneous love making with this woman he hadn't seen for nine years Hmm. and then that inspired him to write a book and then we you know it comes back to they start off with well because of the lack of emotional and romantic connection he has with his wife actually motivated him to write the book because if he had had that remote romantic connection with his wife he probably wouldn't have written the book yeah well that idea that neither of them have had that experience since that one night yeah so it is in in a not inescapable but like it's something that they're unable to achieve again yeah i i think out of the two, I find exploring Celine's character more interesting. Mm. Um, I think Jesse's very almost direct with what he... Like, I, I kind of know what he wants from the start to the finish. And that's not a bad thing, I think. What, you couldn't have two equally as complex characters in the sense. But I think 
Well, I, f- I think they're both equally as complex. I just think you're right. We start from Jesse's point of view. So as the audience already know, emotionally he's quite mm. vulnerable and we see the shield. But I think I think the driving question comes from whether Celine has that same shield because this film could very easily end with her just rejecting him. Yeah. And that they leave again and then that's another, you know, however many years lost sure. to that relationship. So I think, I think that's why we look at Celine in that way because we're the one, she's the one we're not sure where her head's really at. Can we can we just say some of the body language between both? Oh these my films god, it's just yeah. ridiculously good. Yeah, like the the stuff that neither character sees the other one doing, like mm. that subjective discourse versus objective discourse. The way they look at each other without the other one noticing the way they're looking at each other, because yeah. you feel completely lost in it. I think, and in like, I don't think I have had especially with this film, a pure fly-on-the-wall experience as good as this. Like, Interesting. Because like it's that. just like, if I'm seeing everything that I'm seeing, and then re- like eliciting that emotional response, because I think we all... I think the, the, the line, if I was to ever write a letterbox comment, I was like, we all wanted someone... We all want a Jesse or Celine to look at the way that a Jesse or Celine looks at the <laughs> other person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the way that they look at each other... Like in emotion, like in moments of emotional distress where they can't even look at the other person, but the other person is awkwardly trying to react. I think the the car scenes particular. I know, they yeah. come, it's, I know it's a callback to the tram scene. In it the first is, definitely one. is, yeah. Um, yeah. but it's the the difference in the nuances of their body language is due to their time. You know, this is no longer I'm an awkward boy on a first date with a girl trying to be sexy and cute. Yeah. And, get her in a in a in a ferris wheel on sunset so i can kiss her <laughs> no this is a i adore this woman and am mm. hating seeing her this distressed yeah and i'm made her this distress well she has a similar reaction when he's going about how like lifeless his marriage is she has a very similar hand motion that scene is heartbreaking, man. It really it's so is. so good. Because it's so honest. And like these two, I know they're drawing from real life experiences and I'm pretty sure even Hawk went through a divorce before this film. Just I, after. Just after. Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting, actually. Almost for the exact same reason, too. Adult. Well, that, that's it. They're drawing on your experiences and we talked about off the show, th- this is the first film where all three of them, Richard Linklater, um, Julie Delphi and Ethan Hawke, are all respectively given equal writing credits, even though there's a debate to be made that the two actors were obviously a huge influence on the script in the first film. Um, but that being said, it's like their experiences are so core. Cool. Like, mm. yeah, Richard Linklater is doing some incredible things from a direction standpoint, even just, you know, the continuity of the real-time event yeah, and, the, I, and the naturalism of the conversations. But their performances make this series. If it weren't for them, these films would not be anywhere near the level of quality of that. I think are. understanding the consciousness, so obviously he's probably constructed the, the key plot points and where we need to start and where we need to finish and and sort of where we want to go in between and what times we want to explore, what themes. But yeah, when it comes to that's the skeleton, what the other two, what the two actors provide is the muscles, the heart, mm. the... The, the or the organs and the skin and everything else yeah. and i think that you know that makes up oneself and i i think that that's the most why yeah they absolutely are all entitled to an equal credit of one another i think well it, i i would like to think that the actors had said even in even in the skeleton because from my understanding is that this was 
mostly shot in sequence and that they were almost writing the film as they went along. So I don't know how much of a skeleton existed even before they started shooting True. it. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but that, that was the impression yeah, I got I, watching I, it. I think it really obviously depends on directorial style and yep. um, how loose or regimented, you know, we're, we're juxtaposing this with even last week, you know, with Wes Anderson, how regimented his scripts are yep. versus yep. something that's as loose as this or, you know, when we talk about... um you know, John Carney's films and mm. how loose some Especially of those... Like his earlier films, yeah. His like earlier ones. films were just so loose in their plots, you know, having a 40-page script for an 85-minute film. It's like, it's kind of crazy. So um, that's just totally up to whatever the director wants. But yeah, I, I do think with something this dialogue-heavy, character-heavy, mm. the fact that there yeah. are only three named characters in this film in which... Um, the only other one is the driver, Felipe. <laughs> um, nice. Who gets, I think, two. He's the only one who gets a couple of lines in the middle, um, apart from the promoter gets a couple of oh, lines. And at the beginning, obviously, um, the reporters or but, reviewers. Yeah, for the most part, it's. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that notion. No no, no disputing it there. But I think yeah. it's, the, it's the reactions and the look. It's the, when they're not even speaking, it's fantastic. And they're doing it. In often in two shots, which I find interesting, the two shot where they're both mm. in the same shot. Yeah. Um. So it's not re- action reaction. It's just all action reaction. Yeah. It's, in it's the all shot. it's all blocking. It's not editing. Yeah. Which I I can a thousand percent appreciate that. And there's and there's almost an effortlessness to the way this film was done because yeah, in a lot of ways it is a simple film. I think it was a two million dollar budget, which they admit it was really tight, but you know they made it happen regardless. But even just the idea of, you know, they only have a certain amount of hours per day to shoot because all the lighting has to match from this very particular 80-minute portion yeah. of the day. And, yeah, I'm sure they could get away with a couple of extra hours in the cafe, for example. They can add some light or block some light or do what they need to. Yeah. But for the majority of this film was out in the middle of the street with natural lighting. Yeah. Um, which is 15 days, crazy. was the shoot schedule. Yeah, no, which, I mean, that's tight. But then that's even more tight when you think about how many hours per day they actually probably had mm. to even? And then you just think shoot. about every short films get like, just, which is like four or five days sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. it's ten fifteen minutes. <laughs> this is eighty eight minutes for fifteen days. No, but they make it work, and you know, and that's it. It's like when you have this many oneers, very simple shot reverse shots, which the entire film is filled with those. That's even more pressure, not just on the crew to get it, you know, with the daylight they have, but but you know, Julie Delphi and even Hawk for them to get their lines mm. right on the first go or. As as quick as possible. Yeah, it's oh, great. It's brilliant. It's it's a um, it's just such a mix of delightful, intense, mm. and or it's just this roller coaster of emotions about something that's you know quite simple when you really think about it. It's not nothing super dram. All of the drama that happens in their life happens pretty much off like screen, which is yeah. fascinating. Um, but that's sort of what you would expect from the premise of the story. Um, I, what I like is the exploration that both the characters have. Once again, it's really great to see just diegetic film, uh, diegetic music being used, all diegetic sounds. No, yeah, like sounds on the stuff. street or music it's, in the cafe, that kind of thing. I'm not going to go touch too much on Linklater realism because he's very good at it. Um, when he really wants to just purely be realism based, mm. um, it's not really worth exploring because it's kind of what you expect from all three of these films. 
Um, well, the, well, the natural, the naturalism of it all, like we've talked it needs about to be. in it regards needs to, to dialogue this, and that. The funny thing about this film, especially, is especially now that you've, now that they've taken away those kind of specialty characters that enable almost plot points in the first film mm. um, and discussion points, much like in first dates or first experiences with a person, you kind of rely on the world around you to shape. Um, you know, shape the date sometimes. You know, the palm reader opens this whole conversation on fate and cultural, uh, you know, recognition and rituals. And the poem bring, uh, bridges into their dialogue on um, relationships and love and affection. It's it, it's interesting that those, they, they, they kind of are stepping stones to keep the night going for them. Yeah. Um, and this one, they don't need that. They've got nine it's, years. It's super self-reliant on their own conversation, um, yeah. They don't need an external force to come in and, like, introduce a new thing yeah. for them to talk about. The, the fact that I can look at... There's some shots while they're walking on... I don't know what the river is. Don't shoot me. If I'm not big right. on Paris you can geography. See, you, I think it was Notre Dame you can see. It's an important... From, from the I know it's an important river. I just don't know what it's called. Did you get that sense of, like, like sort of that when you see the twin towers in a in a pre 2001 film with, with Notre Dame like being on fire in 2019 did you get oh. that similar feeling no well i was actually going to make a comment on the anti parisian sentiment i feel like this film oh, yeah. has <laughs> like if we really think about it it does not you know unlike woody allen who and i'm not this is not critiquing woody allen but woody allen loves whatever the location he's shooting in is. And that's normally New York or Paris. Mm. And he shows off those places, the spectacle and stuff. And and this film basically goes, yeah, it's in Paris. There's a couple of little icons, but we don't see the Eiffel Tower once. No, no. There's no, they're, they're no, there's no, way, there's no geographical right. paraphernalia in this one. Whereas in the first one, Vienna was a character, it felt like. There was definitely an exploration of, of quite a few profound sites in that time. Mm. Whereas this one... Not the graveyard, we go, for example. Yeah, yeah, we go to a Parisian cafe and we go on a boat on a river. Yeah. And we make... Which, and the Notre Dame nuance is the only time that they yeah, point out... Far in the far in the distance. It's like a faraway shot. It really emphasizes that they don't give a crap about where they are right now. It's about well, their relationship. Yeah. Well, in a sense, and like I said, I think that's partly to do with the, the people around them, that the people of Vienna versus the people of Paris not intervene with their relationship. So the focus is more tight on them. So I definitely agree with you in that sense. But in terms of a love for the place, like I think it's still there. You have the, the film opens before that sort of those shots... Like almost telling you where we're going to end up going. It gives you a little tour of Paris. Um, True, but I, I liked what I liked about it is it wasn't about two people falling in love again in Paris. Right? Yeah, like could, it, yeah, it wasn't a Woody Allen like the place influenced the love yeah, or yeah. anything like that. It's just like they're in Paris because and Celine lives in Paris. There are some beautiful places that we go to in this film. Yeah, but they're not the landmark beauties. Mm. They are beauties like the architecture. Um, of of some of the places, the quaintness of that cafe, like the, the you know, the fact that like there are times where it's like yeah they walk in that garden segment and it's quite beautiful, but we don't know really where that garden segment is. It's not anywhere popular. It's just a yeah. A like like there, there is definitely a roadmap you can draw out for this film, but you're right. It's not like the tour guide roadmap. It's no. not where the bus would take you. <laughs> you're no. right, the, the Eiffel Tower is not in the film. And I I think it's a big pro because what it is is it's adding to the fact that they really are more focused on each other. Definitely, is, yeah. Um, the whole, like, oh, I haven't had a chance to look at Paris. Let's go walk around. That's an excuse. 
That's an excuse to hang out with Celine. Yeah. <laughs> he went on the... The only time they ever do anything touristy as Celine Coates is when they get on the boat. Yeah. Which is another excuse to, to not leave. Yeah. To keep things going, keep the conversation going. Yeah. And I, I like when they have that exchange on the boat, when they're, they're talking about... Um, like she said, that oh, was really pretty. And he's like, yeah, it's the benefit of being a tourist. Sometimes you get to experience this stuff. But the the whole, obviously, point of that is when he starts to press the what if button. The the thing that they've been avoiding mm. the whole time. Because I think that really leads us into that final act as we start to break both characters down and their shields are really starting to disappear at this point. Because he's alluding to problems at home. Um, he, at this point, has at least expressed a serious deep sexual attraction towards her yeah there's no there's no subtlety there no um and when he grabs her and runs to the bench yeah it's like a kid uh which i i think that that's meant like that's a deliberate sort of joke but also a comment on that sort of like erratic immaturity and obviously we find out he hasn't had a lot of sexual intimacy in his relationship um he's like a monk 10 times in four years which is still 10 times longer than I'm doing better than most monks (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's a good line um, (laughs) and then we start to really get to the the part with her which I like honestly is one of my you know it's 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 a fantastic dialogue exchange uh, Mm. by Julie Delphi um, where she talks about she's pretty much just had this complete crisis of identity where she's got the jobs she's ticked every box but everyone seems to just use her as a, she feels like she's being used as a stepping stone yep. for people's final relationships yet at the same time not really wanting the full um, package when it comes to a yeah, serious romantic relationship just like you know I wouldn't have said yes but I still wish they proposed to me type attitude yeah which is I feel like we've all had that sort of weird selfish crisis of character which isn't selfish at all but we think it is yeah and and it's no well it's just that that wanting to be loved and that desire which you know it's like it's when she says like you know it it was you in your book that ruined that and and i think she realized like there was that opportunity there and something that she romanticized maybe she forgot about for a long time has slowly reared its head and um yeah and i think that for her that was the reminder like damn this could have been something especially as they both realize over the whole journey of this 80 minutes like yeah they still love each other jake have you ever watched a romantic film in which neither of the characters kiss each other no i it's funny Until because now. The, the, the review the review that I, I read my own review back from i think may and i did mention that and i was i said something along the lines of i i can't remember exactly what i said but i mentioned that they, there's no single kiss in this film Obviously, on the cheek when they first meet, but not a, not a real kiss, and that no romantic kissing. Yeah, well, exactly, and that it, it just helps build the tension of the will they won't they scenario, and especially when they get to the end, I would love to talk about the ending, um, especially when you know they walk up the stairs, she's holding her cat. It's probably the only time they don't most tension based yeah. spiral stairs. <laughs> but that's thing that I think it's the reason it's so tense is because they don't talk. It's one of the only times they don't talk during that whole walk up the stairs. Um, but then even just like that oh they're screaming in their heads <laughs> like you just know they're oh screaming in their God. heads they're just yeah, like what yeah. is happening what is going to happen no, what is that, happening as we got these two that exact feeling yeah the ascent to something yeah that we're not quite sure what it is mm. yet and I think it's a good opportunity to talk about the end because this leads to her obviously revealing that she wrote a song about 
Jesse, which I was really able to appreciate the second time around. Um, like turn, like grabbing my control and turn the subtitles on. Like I just need to have the subtitles on for this song because I really want to like the waltz. Exactly. Oh my god, it's so good. It's so good. My favorite that was my highlight scene from the first film when they're dancing right. out the yeah. front while the cello is playing. Yeah. No, it's it. That's probably what the the references see more directly. Yeah, it's brilliant. I think um, that's so. I mean, you know, we got quite personal in the first episode or episode one forty, I should say, in terms of the way we related to those characters and the scenarios. And I think for me, it was so weird. And this this is again the 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 cinematic sideshow podcast reels its ugly head, sipping some whiskey and just having like a fat cry while talking about these episodes. Well, it goes back to this idea of, and I remember I was messaging a friend of the show, Stephen, who he had lent me his Criterion collection when I first saw these films back in May. And I was texting him as I was watching it for the first time. I remember specifically when Jesse first says, like, oh, no, I wasn't there. I was I was like, you're lying. You're lying. And within two minutes, he reveals that he was lying about not being at the train station. But I remember, like, those messages I was sending, realizing how much it was having an effect on me. Because I, I asked something along the lines of, you know, have you ever had a song written about you before? And this is why I talk about the cinematic sideshow universe. Yeah. Is that the girl that I mentioned I dated, who was the hardcore Swifty, has indeed written songs to me and about me, both pre and post breakup. <laughs> we don't need to get into that. But that idea of like something about you specifically being created as a, as a song or just a piece of art and like, we go through the whole film thinking she feels weird about having a book written about her, but then you flip it, and now Jesse's the one sort of kind of in awe, going through a, a rattle of emotions on the yeah, couch, that realizing scene, he's, he's had a song about him. <laughs> that scene hit home hard. Yeah. Because there's a, you know, it's like, I remember a couple of years back, we've talked about it on the show, but it was like the moment I heard the song that was written for Faces. Right, yeah. Um, Our film And when that was played to myself and James in the bar, mm. and I know that song was written for me, not for him. And he, right, like, yeah. And obviously, what he took from it, and that's fine. When he then, you know, he can probably he might come on an episode and and counter me on this, but um, <laughs> to have someone explicitly write a song knowing that that was for that was for a piece of work that yeah. I had written and then we directed. But it was the first time I heard it before even it was recorded or was even in the film. Yeah, you heard you heard. It I still had the lyrics framed at my house. Right. Um, which is crazy to think about now. Wow. Uh, well, you know what's funny? So, I literally, if you look at my desktop, I literally have the WAV file of the song on my desktop. This exact song we're talking about right now. You might need to go see someone, but <laughs> I think we might we have some talking. No, to it's do. just done um, here. I it was and. Cool. Um, so that moment when Jesse's getting waltz played to him, I remember the same feeling. Yep. And of like, holy crap, someone's just gone and done this gesture for me. And not really knowing how to react and having that roller coaster of, oh, does she feel something for me? Is this Mm. about that? Or is this a recounting of the past? Like, is this all in the past? But like, and I feel like he goes through a lot of that. At first, he's in awe that he's had... A lot of it's about her kind of falling apart because of what happened and yep. desperately wanting that night again and feeling like that night will never come again. Yep. So he's just... Like, he's responding how we 
like we all will and i think that scene just hits home so hard yeah um and her array of emotions i think is is really good i yes. love the subtlety and when she finally gets to the lyric where she uses jesse's name and you just you know that she's forgotten about that lyric until she gets up to it and she's just like shit <laughs> But also having to commit to that. And then I love his line of like, oh, you just changed the name for everyone who comes up here. Like he gets her out of it. He bails her. <laughs> yeah, he bails her for it. Uh, exactly. And, and, you know, she's just like joking. The ha-ha, yeah, sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah, she gives yeah. Off. She does it in a more French nuanced way. But yes, it's, <laughs> it's definitely implied. I think the last line of the film's the coolest. Like oh, the last my two oh, my God. Oh, my God. you got to talk about it. I screamed when this film faded to black. Nah. I was like, are you kidding I mean, me? I, I did say, I did say, no, it doesn't end there. Like, no. <laughs> and then I went there and I went, that's actually a brilliant ending. Oh, like it's, it, it's and this is And this comes back to why I would just like to mention why I think this film could stand alone because we'll talk about the ending. Um, so obviously the last two lines are, um, you're going, I think it's, you're going to miss your flight. Baby, you were going to miss that plane. Yeah. Yeah. While she's dancing, very subtle, sexy, but kind of jokingly sexy. Yeah, she's doing um, sort of the mimicking. Yeah, but she's it's it's definitely in that yeah. sort of. I like what I like about that particular exchange is um, uh, I'm gonna get the. It's actually on the trivia page what the actual song is, but it's sort of like right, yeah. Um, what she's dancing to. Might be able to pull it up on Spotify real quick. Okay, here we go. The city they listen to in Celine's apartment is Tomato Collection by Nina Simone. Um, Simone, that's so, it. and obviously Celine's doing like a, you know, it's sort of like a sexy, funny dance, but it's sort of like... Sort of that weird that, 60s swaying Yeah, thing. and it's definitely in that framed, in that sort of, you know, she's kind of in this mid sort of sense, Jesse sort of lackadaisically sitting on the couch. Yeah. It's Watching kind her of, it, look, It's voyeuristic, yeah, it's voyeuristic scope, like voyeuristic, absolutely. Um in a way that you know she's totally well, it's consensual. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think voyeuristic can be used in consensual. Yeah, terms. of course. Um, to the point where, yeah, at that point, there's definitely a conceded uh, to whatever is about to happen next. Yeah. Um, especially with his response line, where he's like, "Yeah," like he's just in agreement of it. He's like, like "I know." <laughs> like, I'm gonna miss it. Oh, um, so and then cuts to black, which. Why I think this film can work in isolation is the fact is if there was never a film after this one, much like the first film's debate of, well, did you meet up uh, that driving? Did they meet up? Right. Are you a cynic or a romantic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We answered that question in the first 10 minutes of this film. And now we get, uh, have to ask the exact same question Mm. now, but obviously it might've shifted from cynical to a romantic notion. Cause I feel like, if you watch the first, if if I watched the first film now, yeah. you didn't realize there'd be a second or a third film. I probably would have said they wouldn't have got back together. Interesting. Um, like they wouldn't have met each other in six months because I would have pray I would have backed the irrational, erratic behavior of the young people, which this film immediately subverts that because both of them were fully willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And only, and it, you know, beyond control. I mean, that comes back to Jesse's exchange on the boat. What if she died a week later? What if she died a week earlier? Yeah, yeah. You know? Which is kind of where that goes against the whole idea that destiny doesn't exist. I was, too. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I, I mean, it's a counter in a way, but I think I've, that, I mean, that doesn't speak to destiny so much as it speaks to 
just not even fleeting, but just, just that things just happen. Yeah. And and sometimes you you have a chance of having an experience. Sometimes you miss it, and you may never have known. I mean, sure. it's the whole you know, it's better to have uh, loved and lost than to to have never loved at all. Yeah. Um, that idea. I think for me, it's tricky because I understand what you're saying with you know they they're young. And you know they're young and they're hip, and maybe they don't meet up yeah. later on because of that. They're young and super, and not going to commit to it. But my flip side to that, and again, have obviously seen the future films, is that the the point of that film is to talk about how one night can be so special, yeah, and have an effect on you. And that would probably make me lean towards they do at least try to see each other again. Yeah, I I think so. I definitely think that that's there mm. because. Um, I just think that it's the discussion at the start of the film with the whole are you romantic or cynic. I definitely think that the only point in which it it's like and they they frame it in just before sunrise that um, both the characters believe long distance isn't going to work and mm. they try and come at it from a point of rationality and maturity but cave at the at final the pillar in a very irrational and immature way. <laughs> um, only for them to subvert the expectation of the audience by the second film, as we find out both of them were willing and going to meet. One of them did, and the uh, the other one didn't because of a very you know, because of personal yeah. circumstances, and then because yeah. of the the stupidity of their um, why don't we just call each other? Which the reality is, it was a very stupid and irrational thing, which they address very early on in the second film. Yeah, because. Although they didn't have to fall in love with each other, just keeping in touch might have been a good idea. <laughs> yeah, um, but that, I mean, that's it, because they talk about it. It's like, well, they had their reasons at the time for it, and we saw that play out in real time. We yeah. saw them have that conversation of, well, it's going to lead to this, and eventually we're just going to fade out of each other's lives, versus the you know reflection that comes with the maturity of nine years yeah. growing up, to be like, that was dumb, because it didn't work. It would have been fine if it had worked. That's what they yeah. say. Because the counter, like, Celine tries to re-bring up that point in this film, like, oh, well, it would have just faded out. It's like, yeah, but it didn't, because now we've, we've done nothing but think about each other over yeah, the course of that yeah. nine years. So um, the fact is, yeah, they would have faded out of each other's lives, but they would have rekindled. And re and if they had had maybe a bit of patience, they might have ended up, you know, that child that um, Jesse has might have ended up being Celine's. Mm. It's tricky, and I think that, again, goes to this, like, almost fleeting nature of life of you miss on opportunities or you grab some opportunities. And... Mm. I don't think he's going to miss it on this one, though. I think that's mm. the... If I was to... And I think that that's what this film, in isolation... Right. Um, or even just with its first film, because, once again, we didn't know if there'd be a third film at this point, um, is saying that he is going to take that opportunity. It definitely feels like uh, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna write my wrongs from last time. Yeah. That the ticking clock that we've has stressed us this entire eighty minutes does not matter at the end. And I think it's a brilliant she, subversion, actually, in a lot of ways. The I mean, the ticking clock does not matter. Yeah. Well, it doesn't because at the end of the day, it's you know, his relationship even before this interaction with Celine was spiraling out of control. Like both mm-hmm. of them were in are in currently in very poor relationships as we find out over the course of of the time because because they kind of found what they needed in that night mm. and that's it's actually for both of them it's coming to accept that it really was just because they found everything they needed in that night from each other and 
they just made a they both made collectively a wrong decision at that time. Yeah. And then had to bear the sins of that collective uh, misdemeanor to the point where she thinks she's bad in relationships when the fact is she's just not compatible with anyone else. And the same thing goes for him. He's born a, re- a marriage of convenience, it, it sounds like. like. Yeah, it's because his heroes were married. He has yeah. to do what his heroes do. Yeah. And has only stayed in the relationship longer because of the obligation to not have the same consensus that his parents had when he was a child. Mm. Zeke. Yes. Are there any particular conversations, lines, anything you want to tackle before we do a highlight scenes? Because I've got a couple I thought were interesting. I'll probably let you prompt me on these ones. Okay. And go from there. Well, I had, uh, there were two in particular. I like the conversation I have about people, the study that was done to find that people are sort of inherently who they are and that whether a joyful person is, is put in a wheelchair or a spiteful, angry person is wins a million dollars at the lottery, that they're still going to be their joyful or spiteful versions of themselves, mm-hmm. even after like a good or bad thing has happened to them. I thought mm-hmm. that was a very interesting thing that was mentioned. And I think that sort of speaks as well to, to well, both characters in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Well, the strength um, of their compatibility, because it hasn't changed. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that this thing is inherent regardless of what's happened with the nine years. I like, I like that. The other one I just want to mention, I love Celine's story about the officer who told her to get a gun when she was in the US. And particularly because I know someone who's lived in the US for a long time. Well, apparently it was who, based off an actual story oh, that Julie Delphi had. Makes perfect sense, yeah. Well, I can I have the story as well of a friend who, when he lived in the US, he had his apartment broken into. He didn't realize it. He sort of arrived home and saw it. And when he reported it to the police, the guy said, get yourself a gun. And if you ever have to use self-defense, make sure that by the time we arrive, the body is on the other side of your door. And then he just left. <laughs> this is a pretty... Whew, that's a pretty heavy thing to tell someone, but... Um, so Check I, out our Nitram episode yeah, for a while. Nitram, this is horrible. Guns, yay! I might have told that exact story on the Nitram episode, now that I think about it, but I, I like those conversations because I found them quite interesting. But um, Were there any that sparked to you, or... Did they tidy your heart? I think think I've covered a lot of them over the course of this Mm. this conversation. Uh, I think I really like um, just the fluidity of conversations. It's seamless, but it's still motivated. It's fascinating how they blur that line. It's unbelievable. But I think it's quite simply, and this might be a testament to why it's so important they've got the writing credits. Mm. I think they might. It could have been as as easy as. These are. This is your character profile. This is actually what's happened in the nine years to you, roughly. Right. You've had this kid. You've been in this in and out relationship. You've been in and out of relationships. Never really felt love and compassion, and constantly distanced yourself from them. You kind of having like having those relationship of convenience, and then basically being like, and go, and then see, <laughs> and you both still really love each other. Um, try and get from here to there, and just purely embody. And maybe that's where it comes from because. All their conversations, though tangent, appear tangential on the surface, all have rooted agendas in them. Both characters want to get something out of the other character. Yeah. Well, the writing's spot on. And that's right. how that information worked. You know, it, and Blue Jay is probably the only other film that I've seen really do this sort of balance so well, where it's like the characters are trying to gauge, um, you, know, the, you know, the characters and that are trying to get information out of each other, see where they're at life-wise see maybe the position of marital statuses and Mm. such like that. Um, And this is definitely like that. Like they don't, he doesn't go straight into talking about his marriage because he doesn't seem all necessary, nor does she want to bring up he's married because she doesn't want to be inappropriate. Right. And waits for the most 
appropriate time to bring it up, which is when he starts to physically cross some uh, not platonic lines mm. with, you know, even lackadaisically, like jokingly dragging her and have it sitting on her lap and implying that they should just start making out. And then almost instantly after that dispels, she brings up the relationship stuff. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, okay, well, that's the moment to bring it in because that would be the most natural moment because she doesn't really want to concede that she's in a, he's in a relationship, but there are, there was, they they were going to have to address it at some point. And, and I find that that natural fluidity is probably, is just the strength of the film easily. Yeah. Cause they feel like two humans. They feel like two humans. You and I might never meet in our life, but it would have walked past. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. We could quite easily... What is so great about these films is there's nothing stopping from me and you being in the background of one of these. Yeah. Like, we're, we're backgrounds of the story of other people in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we could have been one of those people that... At times, I honestly thought they were just filming on random streets with no extras because of the way sometimes the extras would, like, kind of fourth wall break. So oh, really? Really? <laughs> I know they're all extras. I'm pretty like they'd have to be all extras because I'm pretty I'm sure, sure a lot of them are. There's no, there's got to be no Paris Street that's that quiet like <laughs> at that time. Surely not. I mean, they would have locked off roads, obviously. No, but no. Um, I'm yeah, just saying. It's but it's it feels like like quite easily we could be in the backgrounds of of you know Jesse and um you know and gone blanking. Why did I, did I just blank Jesse on Celine? Celine, how did I blank on that? <laughs> um. <laughs> But Jesse and Celine's lives. And we could quite easily be the main characters in our own versions of that. And I think that that's what's so fascinating about pure... This really does feel like pure fly-on-the-wall sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. This could be happening and we're sort of subject to it in a way. That's just... It's beautiful. I reckon... I I struggled, obviously, especially because the film's so continuous... But I reckon my highlight scene would have to be in the car when they both sort of... Yeah. That's got to be, like, the real act two ending climax. Like, all the stakes are off. When she almost she almost climbs out of the car. She's like, I'm leaving right now. Yeah. She almost calls she it off. She doesn't want to confront journey. it. Yeah. Um, and I just... I love the back and forth there and just how deep and real um, their pain is. And especially, especially even the hawk as he talks about like waking up in sweat streaming about Celine and like he's a million miles away from his wife and just like I'm obviously not married mm. but like you can feel it you can feel the energy and, and the sadness in, in his performance especially poor Felipe <laughs> would have been a very uncomfortable ride I imagine uh, yeah when he's getting told like stop the car don't stop the car stop the car <laughs> <laughs> Oh goodness me! I have to. I would probably say that if I can't pick that scene, I do think the waltz sequence at the end is is fantastic, oh, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um. So that would probably be my highlight scene. Now, I gotta ask, Seek. I forgot to do it in one forty. I did it last week. Yeah. But now's a good time to do it again. You've seen sunrise, sunset. That's the name of a song. Sunrise, sunset. But we got before midnight coming up. We do. And the audience can guess when. <laughs> it's not hard to do the math. Uh, One fifty-eight. Uh, ah, spoiler alert! No, but speaking of spoiler alert, yeah. Zeke, what do you think happens in the third film, or where do you think we find Jesse and Celine in the third film in twenty thirteen? I really think because I'm trying to think where the plot's going to come in, right? I think it's. Do you want me to give I... you? I know I want to give you a clue. 
But I'll read a quote from Ethan Hawke. That might help you out a bit. I'd rather, you know, I'd probably just rather take a blind stab okay. at okay. this. You I'm take the stab, thinking... I'll tell you the quote afterwards. Yeah, okay, cool. So my blind stab, because I did all right with my last one. Mm. Um, I think this one's a lot more difficult, though. Um, I think that they s- start seeing each other for a period of time. and Or, no, actually, I think, this is what I actually think. What do you I think, think they so? <laughs> they have a little romantic they they have exactly like what Ethan wrote in the book for his book. They have a 10-day spell of uh as I think he said vigorous love making <laughs> and vigorous. um they they realize they then run away from that because they've got everything they want and then they don't see each other for another nine years, and then they restart, and then finally just give in by the... Or they don't give in by the third one. I think they don't end up together. But they start thinking they can in that film. But it's the introspective as to why they th- they, they start to work, why they don't think they could work together. And they go through everything like they did in this one. But I think the book ending he originally wanted for his book, as the pitch, is how that sequence ends in Paris... And then nine years will go by and they'll rekindle. And mm. I don't know if they'll end up together. I actually highly doubt it. You highly doubt it? Okay. Interesting. I just are, think- you, are you saying between this film and the next or by the end of the whole trilogy that you don't think they're going to be together? I definitely think they're not going to start together at the start of the next film. Okay. So I think... 10 days, falling out, like, or a couple of weeks, they'll spend together. They'll run away from that, or sh- perhaps Celine will predominantly run, I think, will be the character that will run away from it. Or, yeah, see, it's so tough because Jesse tough. might have the obligation of, of his kids. It's so. Mm. I think that they're going to cross the line and have like that, and then they'll go back to their respective relationships and start the next film. He might be divorced by then, but not. They won't be together at the start of the next film. Okay. And then they'll just work out why they were the Dumbos for eighteen years, and they should have just been <laughs> together. By the end of, I reckon. I'm hoping they get together by the end of the. Mm. I'll I'll tell you two things. Cool. I'll tell you two things. So I'll read this quote from Ethan Hawke. This is him talking about the third film, but it reflects on the whole trilogy. He says the first film is about what could be. The second film is about what should have been. And the third film is about what it is. That's what he says. My second thing I'll tell you is watching the film. Let's say let's say the opening reveal. The film is very clever in the beginning about where these characters are often. Mm. I nearly cried when they did like a reveal shot of where these characters are at in their life. That's all I'm going to say. Oh. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm very excited to finish this trilogy. Doing a, in a while. It'll be 2022 oh, when God, we do it. Don't say that, dude. That I can't wait so, for the year. So 2021 was a tough year, and these were these were shining <laughs> lights was. in 2021. Um, yeah. So currently, before sunset is out on what's it out on? Jake? You can't. You can't. You can't <laughs> rent or buy it on YouTube. Yeah, um, it is the Criterion Trilogy is obviously out there. I'm hoping to have that by the time midnight. That'd be around. sick. That would be, be really nice. It doesn't take too long to get here. So. No, the shipping's not terrible. Um, if you prep for it enough. 
I'm sure I'm um, hoping to get that it. in next pay cycle, so that should be good. But exciting. Enough about my pay cycles. <laughs> Jake, what's new to <laughs> cinemas and streaming platforms? Oh, uh, your pace cycle is in paying for all these subscription services. I feel that. <laughs> um, before I start, Zeke, how many Christmas films do you think we're already getting this week? Like to streaming services? Like, well, streaming services and cinemas. How many things just come out this week? That are Christmas related. Yeah, that are direct Christmas films. Oh, let's see. We're going to December. So probably, I'm going to say 26. 26? Well, a new, or new ones. Not like just like old films put on streaming. Yeah, films. like brand new films. Coming, oh, okay. Coming out in the next Oh, week. okay. Like eight. Okay. As I, I wrote down two, but that's fair enough. <laughs> Jumping right into eight. Uh, I like it. Uh, oh, wait. It was a guess or are you going to give me the answer? No, no the answer is two. I oh. consider two of what I'm about to read as full-fledged, brand-new Christmas films. Ah. I think eight was a pretty uh, hopeful guess. I don't know. With all the streaming platforms, they could already use those dumb... Oh, I guess so. Hallmark. You might be wrong. I might actually be right. I could go well, looking yeah, through I, all I those Hallmark collection films. I don't films. write every single film. I write the notable ones that I that I notice. Yeah. Let's, let's just jump right Dude, into it. Dude, Christmas Princess 3 came out last <laughs> week, so... <laughs> oh, maybe I'm talking about Princess Christmas 4 next week. Uh, the Princess Switch comes out Princess in a couple Switch. weeks, I'm pretty sure. Oh no. Oh, God. Let's, let's, I'm sorry I brought I'm sorry I brought it up. Coming coming to Netflix this week, you have Robin Robin, which is a 30-minute animated stop-motion short that sees a bird who is raised by mice begin to question where she belongs. Coming to stand this week, you have a bunch of films including Dunkirk, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Nightcrawler, The Exorcist. And most excitedly, we just talked about this, Knit Ram. You can finally watch Knit Ram on Stan in the next week. Go check out our episode on it. There you go. Beauty. Coming to Disney Plus this week is the beginning of the Hawkeye series, which of course stars Jeremy Renner and uh, Haley Steinfeld, which I like her. Even if I didn't pronounce her name correctly just then, couldn't tell her. Coming to Prime this week is the Lee Chang Don film Burning, which is uh, hugely popular. People love that film. I thought it was good. Mm. I thought it was just good. Uh, as well as the recent heist film, Pixie. Couple to Apple TV Plus this week, and this is where we get into our little Christmas games. Twas the Fight Before Christmas, which sees Jeremy Morris bring a whole new meaning to the Christmas spirit with his extravagant uh, seasonal display, Sparks, a dispute with his neighbours at Landam Land in Court. And this is actually listed as a documentary, so... It was a mockumentary. Oh, was it a mockumentary? I don't know. It's, how would that be a documentary? Was the fight for I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's a very Tiger King s documentary. Ah. This taking place in Christmas. Ooh. Anyway, coming to cinemas. Yeah, <laughs> I got excited. So I wrote towards the fight before Christmas. Yeah, and the only other thing that's actually there is already a film called towards the fight before christmas it's the powerpuff girls towards the fight before christmas yeah i did notice that as well <laughs> trying to write this log line up sorry i thought it was quite funny um but yeah no so i'll tell you what's coming to cinemas we have titan which drops at luna this week it is a body horror film directed by the same lady who did 2016's raw and focuses on a woman who after being injured in a car accident as a child has a titanium plate fitted into her head does this remind you of the song, the Titanium song? Just they're like, I, I am Titanium. titanium. You phrased it right? so weirdly, like the yeah. Titanium song. <laughs> That's not what it's well, called. But... We gotta try some Titanium. Yeah, the t- Titanium snorted up. Um, 
So the film Titan won the Palme d'Or at Cannes earlier this year. So I'm very, very excited for that. Um, So that's at Luna this week from the 25th. Something along those lines. Speaking of prestige Palme d'Or winning films, we have Venom Let There Be Carnage, which finally comes out this week. It sees gay icons Tom Hardy and Venom learn to coexist despite the third wheel Woody Harrison in a wig trying to eat them alive. That's the actual Google log line for the film. Yes, the Google log uh, uh, Yeah. It, Are you going to go mean, there and it's... see the guy watch the first one 15 times? <laughs> <laughs> he must be so upset he lives in Australia to wait two months to watch Venom. <laughs> the guy watched Venom six times in the cinema. <laughs> that harassed me hey, at it's my all about It's all about Venom. memories, Jake. That's what it's I've all learned. about memory and detail. That's exactly it. My God. I, that, I pray for that, Lord. That man. The Boss Baby family business oh is, Zeke, get this, is the second film in the <laughs> Boss Baby franchise. How in the fuck is this the second Boss Baby film? <laughs> that makes no sense. Alec Baldwin in this one. Oh, no. Yes, he is. Rough. Oh, uh, everyone watch out. <laughs> it's like when Maggie shot Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. <laughs> That's a horrible joke. I'm so sorry. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the film sees the boss baby attempt to stop the plans of a, a vi, 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 what the hell? Violent? Violent? Vicocious? Is it a vicious? No, no. I'm having a brain fart right now. Uh, anyway, the plans of a professor attempting to destroy childhoods. That didn't really make it any better, did it? Also, no. fun fact, guess who did the music for this? Who? Hans Zimmer. <laughs> that's why I couldn't work How? with that's why I couldn't work with Nolan. He's busy doing the boss baby. Oh god. Where is this? Someone help me. A boy called Christmas. Or is it a boy called Christmas? I might have mistyped that. Is playing early at Hoyts this week and sees a young Saint Nicholas set out on an extraordinary adventure to find his father. So there you go. A little exciting animated film for you. And lastly, Although, not so exciting because they're already sold out and you can't get these tickets, but I'm still going to mention it anyway. The French Dispatch is coming out at Luna this week. Where's Anderson? But uh, you might have to send some scam emails and try and scam someone out of their (laughs) tickets for that one because it's already sold out. So, good luck with that. That's it. That's what's coming to cinemas this week. No dramas. Well... We're not doing any of those next week on the show. We're moving into episode 150, our latest director's corner. But Jake... For our milestone, <laughs> who's the director and what are we watching? So, Zeke, it's kind of hard to believe. we've. I think we've only done one film ever from Mr. Steven Spielberg. I don't know why I did the accent. This is our 30th director, too. 30th director's corner, and we haven't done Steven Spielberg yet. So we wanted to go quite early in his catalogue, a little earlier than E.T., which we did in the 80s, episode 80-something in the 80s. Next week on the show, Zeke, we're talking about Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. 
This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. Jaws sees a police chief, a marine scientist, and a fisherman sprint into action after a white shark terrorizes the inhabitants of a quiet island. It's a midi. The quiet island is called a midi. Don't need to say much about Steven Spielberg. It's a 150th episode, though. That's crazy. It doesn't feel like it. It does not feel like it. 150 weeks. Crazy. Well... (laughs) Crazy existential crisis. It's all about memories. It's all about memories. And details. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sci-Fi Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jay. And we'll catch you next week with Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Dun, 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 dun.